Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. Welcome to this edition of Meeting of Minds podcast. My guest today uh, is my good friend, David Bonson. Bonson is the principal of the Bonson Group, one of the most successful financial advisors in the country, uh, uh, author of numerous books, um, some of which we've discussed on this podcast before. Um, And this new one, yes, he has a new book, might be my favorite. It's kind of a close... Uh, to uh, a previous book along similar lines, The Crisis of Responsibility. The book is Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life. David, welcome. Well, thanks so much, Jerry. It is a privilege to be with you, my friend. And a privilege uh, to be with you. By the way, I've read this book um, entirely. I'm on my second reading now. This is the book that I feel like I've been waiting for. Why has no one written this book? Um, and when, when I first saw this and started reading it, a question popped up into my mind that I would love to just kind of rhetorically ask to Christians out there in your entire life. Have you ever heard a sermon against laziness? Every time I've asked that question of an audience, no hands have gone up. That's why this book is needed. Yeah, well, I I agree, and I think that you could look at different synonyms of laziness from from sloth and and irresponsibility and and other things like that, and the answer is more or less the same. But let's just say someone raised their hand and said they have, I I I would be skeptical that it uh, would be a sermon that contained the forward, non-defensive, non-apologetic, direct. Um, repeating a biblical emphasis on on work, uh, that's really kind of what I, I tee up the book with in the introduction. Is that there's an issue of um, not not of bias, but of emphasis. We we uh, you know as we're recording it now, I'm sitting in New York City. My pastor here in the city is incredibly on board theologically with what you and I believe on this subject. And as I look around the pews on a Sunday morning or the folding chairs in the uh, school auditorium as logistics would have it, uh, I don't see a lot of lazy people. Mm. I mean, that's a a church uh, in a city known for having a lot of drivers, a lot of ambitious people. And I appreciate the cultural context of Manhattan being a little different. But when I look across the great majority of American evangelicalism, um, the notion that most pastors would have the context that a congregation in Manhattan would have of drivers, of strivers, of climbers, of producers, it would all be spoken of pejoratively. Mm-hmm. It would all be spoken of as a negative if they thought it existed. And this is, to me, what I really the long setup for why I think the book is necessary. Um, I think most preachers are giving a sermon about work 
that doesn't apply to anyone in their congregation. They're not giving the sermon against laziness. They're not giving the sermon uh, with those very sarcastic verses in the book of Proverbs that people use as a rationale for not working more. They're giving a sermon about an idolatry that is totally unheard of to our generation, to particularly most young men. Um, uh, and, and I think that it, it's time we actually preach to what is relevant in the congregations. Interesting. So yeah, I think we, you're talking about these sarcastic denunciations. There's a lion outside. Yeah. You know, I have to stay in bed today. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you have a chapter that deals here with the data. If, I think if you look at American culture and the American economy in aggregate, we have, I think, a work ethic crisis. Do you agree with that? I do. And and if we, um, a lot of the things we're used to as Christians, identifying uh, in, in contrast to the secular age, this is one that is completely, totally compatible with the secular age. In other words, I think that there is, for example, a crisis of sexuality, a crisis of gender, uh, net nature clarity, a crisis of sanctity of life in in the society. But for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, the church is on the other side of those issues. And many uh, men and women of evangelical identification would be um, contrarian to those things. When it comes to work ethic, the crisis of work ethic, I think that the church is as bad or worse hmm. than the secular culture. So we're not counterculture. On sexual issues, we're countercultural, right? We know lust is bad. We know that, you know, you're born in the right body. You shouldn't surgically alter yourself. We know that the taking of human life um, you know, from the womb is a bad thing. We're countercultural on matters pertaining, say, to sexual ethics. But we are almost, we're, 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 let me put it this way, I think you already said it, worse. We're not countercultural. We, the the laziness, the anti-work Marxist assumptions that drive, say, universal basic income and the idea um, of work as a negative, uh, productivity as a negative, evangelical Christians may well be worse than the world on that issue. Um, instead of countercultural, we are too much. We're further in the direction than they are. Well, I, I agree completely, and and it's something I make the case of in the book. I think that an unsaved financial executive, financier, hedge fund, private equity, investment bank, private wealth trader, portfolio manager, the various white collar um, positions are adjacent to my own profession and sector. I think there's a more Christian attitude towards work from the unsaved members of that community than there often is from the saved members of that community. So in the sense, in the sense of appreciating the ambition, the drive, um, and, and a goal focused, uh, approach. Now, if people want to pull out the old tape of wall street, Oliver Stone's movie or the wolf of wall street and, and get into hedonism and this and that, I, you know, I'm sure there's more, uh, promiscuity and drug abuse in the unsaved world, but even that's mostly a caricature and uh, 
sensationalistic fantasy of the real world. Most unsaved Wall Street dads are soccer dads. <laughs> you know, right. they're, they're pretty, they live pretty boring lives like I do. But uh, no, they don't have a Kuyperian approach. They don't, I, I'm not making the case that their, their uh, work ethic is rooted to the cultural mandate like ours is, but they have a work ethic. And they don't say things like, this is work I have to do so I can do the other work that matters in my life, like missions and like Sunday morning church and like counseling. They don't say things like that because their work really does matter. And in that sense, the common grace ends up sometimes becoming more powerful than the special grace. And it's very disheartening. Yeah, I remember hearing a, a story, a sermon actually, uh, from the president of a Christian college uh, uh, he was talking to, uh, I think, a CEO, a highly successful CEO. And the CEO said, well, you know, I do that important work Monday through Friday, but the most important work I do is teaching Sunday school Sunday morning. And that was told as a positive story. I mean, that was, yeah. we're all supposed to go, oh, that's right. That That is, is it? <laughs> I, I think well, this particular well, you know, exactly. But the way you told that, that's even better than what I think many in that person's position actually say. Because at least he said the work's important, and he wrongly said the work Sunday is more important, which, first of all, if it were true, and I were a client or customer of that person, I would want to know why I should do business with him when he saves his best for Sunday morning. Why don't I just attend his Sunday school, and I'll get fed by what he's doing then? Why do I need to get his, his mediocre output in the middle of the week? But many actually explicitly, so I'm not being uncharitable here. I don't, I, I really try not to do so. My critiques of modern evangelicalism's approach to this subject throughout my book was entirely filled with quotations, not um, straw man summaries. But many say the work I do Monday through Friday isn't important, but it at least enables me to get to the week pay my bills to support my family. So then I can do the important stuff. So I disagree with both frameworks. Uh, the notion that one is important, but the other more important is wrong. And certainly the view that one isn't important at all. And I, I unfortunately believe that that sort of addiction to mediocrity is what has largely characterized evangelicalism's relationship to the workforce. Yeah, and I, I wonder if there's kind of a self-reinforcing loop. If you've got an addiction to mediocrity, you'll preach mediocrity, you'll attract mediocrity, you, you'll have a mediocrity culture, which then becomes almost impossible to challenge. Uh, in other words, it's really hard for me to um, to tell um, whether we have a theological problem or we have a sociological problem. Um, I think we have both, and they feed one another. So that if, so everyone comes to Christ, they come to Christ equally, right? They don't come to Christ with their value being determined by their economic productivity. Um, and that somehow kind of become, there's an, there's an egalitarian aspect of that, right? Uh, so that egalitarian, egalitarianism then kind of spills over into economics. So yeah. our work doesn't matter in establishing our righteousness kind of becomes our work doesn't matter. Uh, and and yeah. we're all equal before God in our salvation kind of comes down to, and we should all be equal in income. And if somebody starts rising yeah. in productivity a little too much, they're on the suspect list. Well, I prefer people not do bad theology as you do. But if one's going to do bad theology, I only wonder why it is so conveniently 
applied selectively. In other words, why do I not get to say, um, look, I my performance as a husband and father is not the basis of my salvation. And so I don't really want to hear about how bad of a dad or a husband I am. Those things are not my identity in Christ. And so therefore, let's leave that out of the subject and not evaluate me um, as a husband or father, but rather just simply one who is saved. And in, in, see, we never would say it. We never think it. And if we did, nobody would ever let us get away with it. But when it comes to our performance in the workforce, we not only allow it and enable it, but we we downright encourage it. So it and, so it matters if you're a good or bad dad, and it matters if you're a good or bad husband. But it doesn't matter if you're a good or bad worker or entrepreneur uh, or executive. That that does for some reason that category it doesn't matter. And by the line of reasoning that is used for evangelicals to say that it doesn't matter if they're a good executive or or producer or whatever the particular uh, professional uh, pr situation they have is, by their line of reasoning, it actually doesn't matter if they're a good parent or, or, or whatnot. Um, if they want to be consistent to the view that these things are immaterial, to my position before Christ, some sort of just antinomianism, some sort of easy believism. Once you say um, such and such doesn't matter because I'm covered in Christ, then you may as well throw the baby out of the bathwater. Don't just leave it at how hard you work, how many times you stay late at night. Just just give, give yourself the blanket immunity you need to be a slacker in all areas of life. Yes. It's going to be really liberating. Yes, exactly. And maybe yeah. preachers will go along and say, listen, uh, sexual restraint, uh, oh. you know, that doesn't really matter. Why Why break a sweat resisting yeah. porn, uh, yeah. you know, because Christ has taken care of it all. See, I think there is a sociology of the church. And I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here. It's almost a little bit like, at least in the mainline world, church is kind of, grandmother focused. <laughs> so grandmother's concerns get, um, which is, hey, you know, the family, everyone stays together, that, the, all, all good concerns. I'm sitting next to a, a Mima right now, um, who's also a very successful entrepreneur. So she has a broader set of concerns. Might be different than young men starting out in life trying to, you know, who are ambitious in their job set of concerns, but they're not there so they're not really a constituency. I know that's a little risky to say that, but there is an audience. There is a customer of church. Well, and in a lot of ways, one of the things I, I sort of maybe did without the directness I wish I had, but um, but I probably could have done, is apply something in the book to the generational theory um, around some of this stuff. Because it's interesting, I think the fact that church is so rarely today minister to five-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 32-year-olds, 48-year-olds, and grandmothers, that most churches market themselves to one of the above. Yes. Where a lot of people in a given vibrant suburban context, they go to one church when they're single. They go to another church when they're newly married, another church when they have little kids, and another church when their kids are in the high school youth group because the churches are just not set to be multi-generational, that leads to a very deficient view of work. Interesting. And 
and it leads to um, a different deficiency presented multiple times. So the message, and you and I have talked about this, the message to boomers who have been successful is, okay, look, we don't want you feeling guilty about your success. Let's go ahead and move into the significance phase so of your gonna life. So we're going to move from success to significance. I'm glad you you did that because there's this book, I think, is taking a not too subtle point of view right from the very beginning from the title, which is full-time um, because there's a very influential book called Halftime. And the basic premise of halftime, and there's a ministry formed over it, which is you, you make a lot of money up until a certain point, maybe you're 50 or 60 or whatever, and but that was success. Then you sell the business, you have the liquidity event, and now you go on to significance. And maybe that's teaching Sunday school or starting a ministry or something like that. And am I correct in that full-time as a title is in fact a rebuttal to, to halftime thinking? Uh, you are correct. Uh, not subtle, not implicit, meant to be very direct, meant to be very respectful, but it is a counter view. The halftime view is is um, laid out in a book that has sold nearly a million copies and has served as a sort of Sunday school primer for countless evangelical um, churches around the country. And the very nomenclature of full-time is meant to suggest something different. And you could argue that it is for a, a higher full-time view on a given day, um, you know, that you, you are to clock in and clock out with a real commitment to excellence and proficiency, uh, but also throughout the sort of season of our life. I have a chapter in the book, which I think will end up being the most controversial, but I don't really know. I've not proven to be a good read of these things as to what I say that bothers people, what I say that doesn't. But I have a chapter suggesting that our very concept of retirement is specifically anti-biblical. And, and so I think that uh, halftime is meant to suggest that people should work for half their life and then they should go into something that is non-vocational for half their life. And yet it can be really meaningful uh, in, in other ways that require them to adopt a very dualist understanding of reality. And, and so the book is, if, it were, if one were to be a little bit more um, theological, uh, the book is meant to be a very direct hit on Gnosticism, mm. uh, the Gnostic heresy, and uh, the, the Gnostic dualism. heresy being the ancient Christian heresy that materi the material world is bad and that salvation is to transcend material and go to spiritual. And, and that there's even such a thing as a sort of secret spiritual uh, superiority out there. I think a lot of the Gnostics um, sin was just the arrogance of believing that there was some sort of, uh, uh, and this is, I think, what happens when you don't have that. Uh, theology that leads to both the transcendence and imminence of a personal God who loves us and gave us his son in, in, in the flesh, in, incarnational truth. Gnosticism leads to this sort of idea that there's this uh, spiritual mystery out there, the pursuit of which is superior to our lowly, physical, material, human endeavors. And really, you have to argue that dualism is born out of that Gnostic heresy 
and dualism being this notion that there is a realm of sacred and a realm of secular and never the two shall meet, in my view, uh, is not merely that our sacred work, our, our um, secular work is as important as our sacred work. My argument is that no such distinction exists at all. Mm, interesting. Um, you know, made to bring up another book, but uh, N.T. Wright's new book, Into the Heart of Romans. Yeah. Um, he talks about a theology of glory in the book of Romans, especially yeah. in chapter eight, which he sees as the heart of Romans. And he came recalcitrantly. He resisted this premise. He had a he had a one of his graduate students did her her doctoral thesis, um, uh, proving in great detail that doxa glory um, in the book of Romans is not a reference to someday you go to heaven and then God is shiny and we're shiny in the beatific vision, you know, but instead that glory in Romans is a reference to restoring the original Adamic calling to be rulers of the earth. So, and Tom didn't want to go there because you probably know his work well enough to know he doesn't really like marketplace stuff very much. And, you know, and that's a lot of this is marketplace work. But the the linguistic argument was overwhelming that we're in our glory when we're doing what God put us here to do in the book of Genesis, which is to fill the earth and subdue it. By the way, you have a chapter on Genesis um, in this chapter three of this book. You want to talk a little bit about the book of Genesis and how it informs what you're saying? Yeah, much like I um, came to the conclusion with my my study of economics uh, some time ago, um, I decided to start at the beginning of the Bible. And I believe that our understanding of work uh, it has to start at the beginning of the Bible because I believe that the fall presents a prima facie complexity that one could make the argument, I will say it's errant, but they could make the argument that um, the fall uh, represented a point at which work became a curse and work became um, poisonous and unattractive and and uh, that sort of necessary evil uh, that we now have to deal with on this side of glory. And because Genesis 1 gives us a glimpse at God's created purposes before the fall into Genesis 2, of course. I started the book there. And much like my views of human anthropology um, colored, I, I was always a student of Hayek. I was a student of Amesis. I was a student of Milton Friedman. Um, there's so many uh, uh, unsaved economic uh, giants out there that influenced me a lot, but I never had a taste of human of, of economics um, the way I did when I understood Genesis and the human person as being created by God in his image with dignity and what that meant for what I believe about human action. So I sort of figured out that I had adopted what Vamesis referred to as praxeology, a logic of human action that I was very committed to, and I think it was very accurate to understand economics that way. I think Menger really gave us a really wonderful truth about subjective theory of value. These things were profoundly important to me, but I don't think that those guys have any ability to anchor it to a standard that holds up to uh, intelligibility. 
and being raised in Greg Bonson's home, being being raised Vantillion, being raised with a certain um, epistemology before I ever knew the word epistemology. Mm. I don't think that most of the free marketeers of our world uh, over the last couple hundred years are, um, were able to really connect the dots. Mm. And so when I look at the subject of work, I want to start with the foundation from which other dots start getting drawn. And I believe that what you see in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, that is often referred to as the cultural mandate passages, I think it's something far um, even greater than the way it's been applied. I think it is um, a passage on vocational calling that directly links our cultivation, our stewardship, our dominion, our hierarchy over the animal and plant kingdom, a lot of these things that we accept and understand, but it links it to these attributes we share with God, that God, we are workers and God made us as workers because he is a worker Hmm. and because we are made in his image. And then that is a universal So much like I don't accept a view of economics, it says 50% of us should produce and 50% out there are really, you know, going to consume off of what we produce and, and that we should be content with this sort of a two caste system. Um, And I reject it because I believe a hundred percent of us were made in the image of God and a hundred percent were made to be producers. Likewise, I view work in the same regard. Um, I believe the commandments for a work-rest paradigm. I believe the six days shalt thou work and do all thy labor, but the seventh is a gift from God to us to rest, modeled by he himself in the what? Genesis 1 creation account. This wasn't made up at Exodus 20. It was was a byproduct of pre-fall reality. And so that um, set the stage in, in the third chapter of my book for my theological basis for work as something God created us to do straight from the garden. Yeah, and that dominion mandate is given to Adam, and then the woman is created, Isha, right, is created uh, to be a helper. Well, a helper with what? (laughs) I mean, you have to stop and say, what's she supposed to be helping with? Well, he's already been given the job. The job is to fill the earth and subdue it. So if we want to kind of understand where family and economics fit together, that pairing of male and female marriages um, are the engine by which God accomplishes his purpose in the world. Um, And I think that families are very important, right? So none of this is be a bad family man, as you point out, but it is that the the that the, the human calling is the dominion mandate and and you go you go pretty far with this i don't think too far what you say is work is the meaning of our life yeah so that that you know that might be the most controversial thing um i don't know uh, but it, well you know it's it's controversial if if it's going to be misrepresented which which you would never do and and i think most uh readers of the book won't do but i mean i'm also perfectly willing to accept that some people could mean something by that statement that would be wrong. Um, and, and so I mean a very specific context when I refer to work being the meaning of our life. Now, is, is work more important than marriage? 
Well, I, I don't think those questions are super helpful, but I mean, I'm just to play along, I'm always happy to say no. But of course, um, God did not make everyone to get married. I think it's the it's the norm, but we already know uh, from the certain exceptions that are are explicitly given to us in Scripture, there are some not given to. And if we say marriage is the purpose of life, or if we say falling in love is the purpose of life, or the highest kind of ethereal experience one could have, then what we're saying is some people have no purpose in life because there's some people that were granted the gift of celibacy and were were made not to be to be married. Um, but uh, again, people could sort of say, well, those are exceptions, not the rule. But uh, what my question would be is, um, who was made not to work? Well, you say, well, a rich person. Well, that's not true. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe someone with financial comfort was made not to work. And and you can say someone with real physical limitation. I don't agree with that. I think that the work that they're able to do and that we should expect of them is very different. But um, I don't accept that there are exceptions to this idea. But here's where you re- most people would not take my bait or fall into my trap of trying to say work is not the meaning of life because marriage is. What they would say is something even more meaningless, which is work is not the purpose of life. Uh, our relationship with God is. And I would say I entirely agree. Now, do you believe that when I say work is the meaning of our life and our relationship with God is the most important thing in our life, that we are to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the as the um, catechism would say? Do you believe you can explain what that means without work? See, I've never heard anyone do it. No. I don't believe someone can explain what they mean by enjoying God forever, by glorifying him. And then the, the to those who would say, yeah, but David, you have a successful financial practice. You're, you're speaking to other affluent white collar corner office people. That's great if they have all this kind of um, reputation and status in their work. But I mean, do you really think the same thing for a bus boy? It's almost like the Apostle Paul was preemptively there to help me out before I ever had a chance to say a thing. Because he was the one who, almost belittling the objection, said, whether you eat or drink, mm-hmm. do all to the glory of God. Right. The smallest things, the most remedial things, the most perfunctory functions in our lives, just eating and drinking. Paul was the one who said that the, the, from small to big things, we do all to the glory of God. And that, again, in a different epistle, uh, now moving from Corinthians to Colossians, said to um, do all of our work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. And in uh, another epistle in Ephesians, a passage I I do a little more expositional work on in the book, in Ephesians 2.10, saying that we were created for good work, to do this good work, mm-hmm. and used a very specific word for work when other words were available. And he chose the vocational context of work. Hmm. So I don't think that I'm saying anything for shock and awe purposes to say work is the meaning of life. I think it's the only logical explanation of the basic vocabulary of Scripture. Well, I think that's true. I don't think you're saying it for shock and awe purposes. I do think there'll be some shock. 
Um, but people are just going to have to, you know, wrestle with Paul on the matter um, or yeah. or Moses in, in Genesis right. chapter one. Uh, so while we're sticking to the controversial items here, um, you talk here about the pastoral work ethic. Now, you mentioned, you, you know, your pastor, hardworking pastor, I think. We've known hardworking pastors. Uh, on the other hand, um, it is, a, at least in some cases, it seems to be a, a, a profession in which you can get by with very little, too. So let's let's why not take it on? Let's uh, let's deal with the issue of of pastors and work ethic. What would you say about that? Yeah, I, I, I suggest in the book, uh, in one particular chapter, that um, one of the reasons pastors may be at times uncomfortable uh, presenting a, a pretty potent message to their congregants about this is that they themselves may may struggle with with work ethic, and it's it's been difficult because Jerry, I am I went to a small reform church my whole life. My my father was ordained in a small Presbyterian denomination. And there's kind of a subculture in Reformed theology of um, a particular type of reform group that I have a lot of uh, uh, connectivity to. Then there's the broader evangelical world. Um, there's uh, the Catholic world and different experiences people may have had with, with their priest. There is right now the megachurch celebrity world where I kind of think a lot of those pastors actually work pretty hard, yeah. but they just work really hard at really, really, really stupid things that I don't consider pastoral. So, so it's like not a monolithic criticism. Um, there, there's different manifestations with which where where pastors go wrong. If there's a pastor out there who's really working hard and overtime on the faithful exposition of God's preaching God's word and of ministering to his congregation, to trying to disciple the people in their congregation, counseling, nurturing, the things that matter in shepherding. If they're pouring themselves into those two things, that's what I mean as the, as the standard, as the model. That's what I think they ought to be doing. I think it should be a lot of hours. I think they should get stressed sometimes. I think their congregation should support them and love them and, yes, compensate them, compensate them well. But I think you either have pastors that work a lot because they're blogging and, and commenting in chat rooms and, and tweeting and other aspects, or they're in some of the celebrity pastor culture, they view themselves as visionaries. There's a sort of narcissistic vision of the pastorate now that is like boardroom talent brought to the ministry. And it just, it first of all makes me want to puke, to be totally honest with you, but it certainly is not a reference to the model of a hardworking pastor that I So you're saying in. that there are, there are pastors out there who are not doing the hard work of the pastorate. They're doing something else, writing blogs that no one's reading, arguing on social media, et cetera, you and I see a lot of this, frankly. It's like I, I'm, I, I, a lot of these people are pastors, and they will argue all day. And I have okay. to say, maybe you've got more. I don't understand how you can be a pastor, and just yeah. go at it all day like this. Sorry, I've got to sign off. Um, and I, the, you're right. I think a lot of the megas do work hard. They're, in essence, they're almost like entrepreneurs. A lot of the mega oh, churches are essentially family businesses. 
yeah. more than they're actually something like the church in the in the New Testament. I think maybe the a lot of the danger zones. See, I've, I'm a little bit more in the mainline world for various reasons. Somebody can go to seminary, become a pastor, and go to work for churches that have an endowment, and those churches are shrinking every year, yeah. and there's not that much to do anymore. They have a lot. They can have a lot of time on their hands. Um, they just have to like get in the door. It's like middle management in the 1940s or something like that before global competition. And I think there's a lot of room. So I mean, I look. I know people in that environment who are hardworking, but you yeah. basically have to be a self-starter because th- th- yeah. you don't really have an overseer in many cases. Well, and I also think too that, and, and again, this comes with um, some good and some bad. I know there's nuance. But I think that there's been a kind of recrafting of what the job of a pastor is that has been made possible by certain um, modern conventions, the, the, the concept of, a small, of small groups. Um, I'm not one who, who paints a black and white picture of the whole idea being awful. I mean, I think there's a lot of room for intimacy and for relationship building and, and groups where people can really connect together. But small groups as a very specific replacement for pastoral ministry, for shepherding, you know, you you don't need to have a relationship with your pastor because that's what your small group is for. Um, I think that's a very unhealthy development. And it, and yet it's not really something that happened by accident. I mean, it was very intentional. Mm. And, and so that element, and then just this whole idea of brand building and platform and things, modern technology is kind of made possible. Um, so the, the, in it, many cases, the megas are basically celebrities. And if you're a celebrity, yeah. you can't pa- you can't pastor all of your fans. Taylor Swift can't pastor all of her fans. If you're a no. mega church celebrity, someone's got to do the pastoring. So you offload that onto volunteer small small group leaders while you build your brand with the smoke machines and the you know and the books that the church buys. You yeah. know? And uh, essentially, you're a celebrity brand builder. What's what's interesting is I would argue that there's a few examples of people that kind of did become celebrities and yet were did it by accident, uh, or a better way to put it is did it unintentionally. Tim, like Tim it was Keller. not what they set out to. Kel- Keller became famous very very late in life. Right. He had been uh, from the time he graduated Westminster Seminary to the time that Reason for God came out and he hit some bestseller lists. Um, first of all, it was within the last, as we now know, because he's since passed, it was within the last 10 years of his life, right? you know, and he had a 40 year active teaching and preaching ministry. So that to me is, is an exception in the way it kind of played out. And then you look at some of the guys that kind of got in trouble, really talented, charismatic people. Um, I think Mark Driscoll was a very, very, uh, talented, um, uh, communicator, and had a really good um, intuition about the cultural dynamic in his in the Seattle community, um, but I think those ambitions. I, I think that if they don't meet the, the criteria of vain ambitions, I don't really know what does. And setting out for you know that type of of brand building popularity um, versus shepherding within con- uh, the, a congregation. Now some people can become very famous. Uh, holding to their uh, mission of being a pastor. Like Keller did. Keller, Well, like Keller, but even even in, uh, throughout church history, you know, sure. John Calvin became a pretty famous guy. Right. But he wasn't going to stop uh, uh, expositing scripture. He wasn't going to stop. Right. He had incredible physical infirmities. 
and he was a uh, 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 he insisted on planting hospitals and schools uh, in Geneva. Augustine was a working priest and then a working bishop. Yeah, yeah right. So you can do and, both. But, and and you can, and a lot of times it will happen in God's providence. But I think it's very different than, uh, you know. But the the problem is even celebrity culture. There's kind of a lowbrow and a highbrow. You think of the guy at Hillsong who fell uh, in New York, and he was like twenty something years old, and he was a rock star and this good looking guy who was taking his shirt off and buying thousand dollar sneakers all the time and everything, and then he ended up getting caught in an affair and so forth. And 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 this wasn't exactly, you know, the deep end of the pool of theological depth. But then there are others who are pretty bright and, and whatnot, but they're they're really still focused on brand building. And it's different, those two errors, but I think they still come from the same place. A pastor is not working hard on being a pastor. And and then I think that there are plenty of pastors that resent being pastors. Um, all of us as sinful people have to have a time where we resent the thing, the expectations that are put on us. Yeah, you know, right. if you're working hard enough, there are people that are not going to have gratitude. There's going to be stress. There's going to be challenges. If you're there's doing ungrateful. it right, you should really hate the job sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and especially when you have employees, you know, that's one thing I've learned from scaling a business from eight people when I left Morgan Stanley to 20 or 25 people for a long time to now over 60 people is that each evolution has involved growth and prosperity and a lot of wonderful things. And each evolution has involved more complexity because of more people. And sometimes people are a pain in the you know what. And that and and I think that's okay. But I do think that there's a little too much self-pity hmm. from uh pastors. And and perhaps it exists in every profession. I just don't hear it as often as I do from pastors. And maybe I have a unique uh uh seat. Well, this is these are the sheep bleeding here, so the shepherds can listen or not. I'm I'm quasi shepherd. I'm a, I'm an ordained deacon, uh, but I'm a lifelong flock member, then late life deacon, uh, and unpaid. Uh, so I still get the, I still get to make sheep noises once in a while. All right, so <laughs> we have we have not been shy about taking on. Uh, some tough issues. Before we go, David, is there anything else you want to say about uh, your your new book, Full Time Work and the Meaning of Life? Well, I, cer- I certainly appreciate your your support of the book and your reading it and the feedback you've given. And I do I do think that um, as people are listening to our conversation here, that that the the kind of bigger takeaways, um, you, you, I think a lot of people believe a book like this is already out there. I think a lot of people think they already wrote a book like this. There are Christian books that say a Christian thing, that work is important and matters to God. Um, And I'm not the first to say that. Uh, However, I think a lot of times the message of work is important to God that is circulated and certainly that is sold well is accompanied by a closet dualism and a closet utilitarianism that work matters to the degree it facilitates the other things that matter, that that belief in the intrinsic dignity and value and significance of work. That's where I think there's something a bit unique. And if anything else, the presentation. I, I really am asking for people to stop saying the platitudes 
that helps soften the message of work to make us feel more comfortable. These cute little things about, you know, the end of my life, I want to look back and I don't care if they say I was good at the office. I want my kids to say I was a good dad. That's a bunch of bunk. I want my kids to think I was a good dad and people do think I worked hard at the office. Lazy dads raise lazy kids and laziness is a pretty lousy life. You know, what's funny when people say they're so worried about the idolatry of work. You know where I think a lot of idolaters come from is the kids that came from lazy dads that will grow up and say, I don't want to do that. Hmm. Then they don't have a healthy, ordered view of work, vocation, calling. And all they know to do is let the pendulum swing to another direction uh, because they found their dad's uh, uh, lazy approach and the family's financial instability and their lack of sort of... um, identity and and achievement they found it unsatisfying Hmm. and and so you're right there you either most often lazy dads create lazy kids or sometimes you end up creating the very thing we're supposedly supposed to be against here lazy dads create hypomanic kids yeah yes right um because because poverty stinks and they learn that and they have an adjustment reaction to it well this Look, my hope is this book is a lot of things. It's a theological book. It is a memoir. I think of it as mostly as a manifesto. And mm. I pray that God uses it. I don't see how the U.S. can be the economic leader of the world for much longer unless we have a religiously driven revival in the work ethic. Uh, I can't think of a book which is a more likely vehicle for that than this. And if this takes hold... It is a it is an event, an important event in the macroeconomic history of the country and the world. How do I know that? Because when these ideas took hold in the 16th century, it created modern prosperity. It, it was a global historic event. So it could be a global historic event again. And may it be David Bonson, author of full time work and the meaning of life. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Jerry. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Appreciate you very much, my friend. Jerry Boyer here for Meeting of Minds podcast. 